So tonight I'm going to talk a bit about the Rambam, because it's uh, this week it was his yard site. And also there's a famous saying, which is also in uh, Tiberia by his grave, from Moshe to Moshe, lo kam ke Moshe. From Moses to Moses, there was no one like Moses. So it's a play on the connection between Moshe Rabbeinu and Moshe the Rambam, from Moshe ben Maimon. So what is the connection between the two? And the answer is Moshe Rabbeinu gave us the Torah and the Rambam gave us the Mishnah Torah. So there's a Torah and there's a Mishnah Torah. So what is the difference between the Torah and the Mishnah Torah? So we know that the Torah that Moshe Rabbeinu gave us, which we have is the five books of Moses, the five uh, books of the Torah, Chumash, are, are only parts of the written law, the written code. So the written code consists of 24 books called the Tanakh, of which Moshe Rabbeinu gave us five books. So today it's five out of 24. Obviously the five books that Moshe Rabbeinu gave us are the most important books, which contain all the mitzvot received that he received from Hashem. And the other books are more historical in value, but they also consist of certain halachot, which we learn out as well. So Moshe Rabbeinu gave us the written law and he also gave us the oral code. He gave us an oral code which was passed down for generations and was only written down around 100 CE by Rabbi Huda Hanasi when he compiled the Mishnah and eventually the Talmud and other parts of the oral law. So the Moshe Rabbeinu gave us a very brief, uh, concise summary of the mitzvot, but he doesn't really go into much detail. For example, if you want to keep Shabbat according to Mosaic law, there's only two things you have to know. Number one is not to light a fire, which is what the Torah says. And number two, it says you will not leave your houses or your abodes over the Shabbat. And that's how the, the Samaritans and the Karaites, they took the, oral, the written law literally, and they don't believe in the oral law. Therefore, that's how they keep Shabbat. They stay home. There's no fires home. The food is all cold. The lights are all off. It's dark, and they stay in the house. So... Moshe Rabbeinu's written law does not really cover the full gamut of Jewish law because there's an oral part of it which was passed down for centuries orally. And unfortunately what happened was because of the Roman persecution, a lot of the oral law started being lost and therefore Rabbi Huda Nasi wrote down the oral law in the Mishnah and eventually became Talmud. The trouble is that the oral law and the written law were very hard to decipher, right? So you can read the Torah and it's very hard to decipher it. You need a commentary, you need a good commentary to decipher the, the written law. And the commentary is in the Mishnah and the Talmud, everything is haphazard, it's all scattered all over. And uh, it's very hard for a person to learn Jewish law. It's very hard to know what to do as a Jew. Um, what else? What about belief as a Jew? What does a person think of when you talk about Jewish belief? Well, it wasn't really documented. Jewish belief is not really documented. The only part of the Torah that discusses Jewish belief are the first two of the Ten Commandments. Um, I am the Lord your God, you took it out of Egypt. And number two is you would have no other gods except for me. And then you have the Shema. The Shema says, you know, there's only one God. And uh, that's, that's basically, we, that's all we know much about Jewish dogma until the Rambam came along. Um, number three is which parts of our lives does Jewish law cover? Does it cover health? What is uh, what is uh, what does Jewish law say about societal issues? And so, even though the Torah does talk about these things, it talks about them in a scattered way. It doesn't talk about them in a very uh, programmed, in a nice logical fashion. 
is all scattered all over the place. For example, in Parsha Kiddushim, you'll find and a few other societal laws. You'll not be a tailbearer among you. But it's, no, it's not written in a logical sense. It's not written in a rational, logical sense. It's not codified properly. And here comes the Rambam. So let's talk a bit about the Rambam, because the Rambam really added to Judaism, and Judaism without the Rambam will be totally different today. So let's talk about the main areas of which the Rambam gave us uh, new things. But let's talk about the Rambam first, because one of the greatest figures in Judaism, Rambam was born in Cordoba, Spain, in 1135. In fact, if you go there today, you'll find one of the famous statues of the Rambam. You know, people love dead Jews. They don't like live Jews, but dead Jews. When the, when the Spanish kicked out the Jews, then afterwards they have regrets and they, they, you know, they, they celebrate our famous Jews. They put a big statue of the Rambam in Cordoba. So Rambam was born in Cordoba in Spain, 1135, to his father, Maimon. Now Maimon was also a Dayan and Maimon is buried with the Rambam. If you look at, go to Tiberia, to the grave of the Rambam, which has been really very nicely uh, rededicated and there's a nice new building over there. There's a nice new tent over there on top of the Rambam. You'll find his father's grave is right next door. Maimon, who is also Dayan and a very learned scholar who gave the Rambam the tools from which the Rambam built his knowledge, his intellect. So what happened was in those days, it was under, Cordoba was under the, the Muslims. The golden age of Spain, people don't realize the golden age of Spain was under the Muslims. It was not under the Christians, it was under the Muslims. And when the Christians took over Spain, it was the dark ages of Spain. They threw out the Jews. So in 1492, when Ferdinand and Isabella took over Spain from the Muslims, that's when the Jews were thrown out. So uh, one of the greatest figures in, in, in Judaism, Rambam was born in Cordoba, Spain, 1135. And what happened was Cordoba was under, as we said, the Muslims. And unfortunately among the Muslims, there's always a, a period where the Muslims go through phases. And they go through fanatic phases and then they go through very calm phases. And obviously, uh, when the Rambam was born, it was a very calm phase in Moroccan Jew, uh, Spanish history. The Jews were thriving. As I said, it was a golden age. Poetry, music, philosophy, sciences were, were booming under the Muslims. Because the Muslims basically adopted the Greek sciences. They, they learned all from the Greek sciences. And obviously the Jews were one of the, I call the Jews the bees. The bees, they pollinate different civilizations. The, the Jews pollinated the Muslim civilization with their knowledge. And then they pollinate the Christian civilization with the, with the Muslim knowledge. So the Jews were the great, the bees, the transfers of knowledge between different civilizations at that time. The Jews were always wandering from civilization to civilization, taking the knowledge of one and passing on to another, plus Jewish knowledge as well, obviously. So as a result of the fall of Cordoba, what happened was the Almohads came from Morocco, a very fierce sect of Muslims who persecuted the Jews, persecuted the Christians, and when Rambam was just bar mitzvah, the whole family had to flee to leave Cordoba or convert to Islam. So they fled to Cordoba and they spent the next eight years, imagine eight years wandering Spain and France as refugees until 1160, they settled in Fez in Morocco. In 1160, they settled in Fez in Morocco. Two years before this, the Rambam already started his commentary to the Mishnah. So he wrote a commentary on the Mishnah, it's called Perusha Mishnayot Shel Rambam, and you'll find it at the back of every Talmud, you'll find the, the, the commentary of the Rambams to the Mishnah. And uh, parts of which he wrote by heart, imagine. 
he had no books, he was traveling around and learning Mishnah by heart and studying the Talmud also with his father, with his brother, David, uh, probably by heart as well. And he knew colossal amounts of information by heart. And he wrote the commentary of the Mishnah. He also wrote a treatise on the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar, by the way, is very, very complex because it's a, it's a, it's a combination of both the solar and the lunar calendar. Plus it incorporates all the Jewish holidays which have to fall on certain days. They don't just fall here haphazardly. There's a, a certain program written um, into the calendar. Plus there's a lunar, the lunar calendar is 354 days of the year and 365 days of a solar calendar. And we have to balance the two by adding a leap year. So the leap year is a leap month, actually. It's a leap month was added seven times every 19 years. Seven times every 19 years, there's a leap month. So it's very, very uh, complicated how this calendar, the Jewish calendar was programmed. The Jewish calendar was programmed by Hillel II, not Hillel I, but Hillel II, who was a great, great, great grandson of Hillel, who lived around the fourth century CE. He programmed the calendar, thank God for that. Because what happened was in that time, the, the calendar, Jewish calendar was governed by witnesses who had to come to the Sanhedrin and tell them that we saw the new moon and then the, the Rosh Kodesh was pronounced and the days of the, the month followed. But uh, thank God Hillel II programmed it. So today we don't need to go, uh, no Sanhedrin, no witnesses. The calendar is there printed. You can go look it up, uh, printed out the year six, uh, 6,000 uh, Jewish calendar. So the year 6,000, the Jewish calendar. So Rabbi Wright wrote a treatise on the Jewish calendar, which is very, very complex. According to the Muslim authorities, the whole family became formally converted to Islam in Fez. Now, we don't know if this is true, as the Muslims maintain the same about many Jewish scholars. They always said many Jewish scholars converted to Islam. In Fez, we know Rambam wrote a, a treatise at that time that a person, a Jew, does not have to give their life not to convert to Islam. Islam is not idolatry. And therefore, a Jew could accept Islam, he says, and then run away as soon as possible. Try and get away from there as soon as possible. You don't have to give your life not to convert to Islam, but can convert in name, remain a Jew in secret, and run away as soon as possible. A person does not have to give their life. It is not idolatry. So anyway, Sarambam worked on his commentary to the Mishnah in Fez. And he continued his general studies, interestingly, particularly in medicine because over there, there were great uh, Muslim doctors in Fez. And from there, Rambam became a very good doctor. From Fez, the family ran away, as we said. Either they were under pressure to convert to Islam or they converted and ran away as soon as possible. Um, and they ran away, where well, they, they ran away to Eretz Israel. They ran to Acre, Akko in 1165, when he was 30 years old. And this was prompted by the martyrdom of one of the leading rabbis in Morocco, Yehuda ibn Susan, who was the teacher of the Rambam. And uh, they, they told him, either you become Muslim, we kill you. And he chose, he refused to become Muslim and he, killed, he was killed. So he was martyred. And maybe the Rambam and his father felt they were next. And therefore they took off. They took a boat and they went to Akko in Israel. They landed in Akko. The family remained in Akko for five months. They toured the holy sites and they heard there was a plot. The Christians at that time, the Crusaders, were fighting the Muslims to take over um, Israel. 
and there was a plot to capture the Rambam. They had heard the Rambam was in Israel and they wanted to capture him and held him to ransom. So the Rambam and his family ran away again and they set sail for Egypt where they settled in Fostat. Fostat is the old city of Cairo. For eight years, it says, the first eight years in, um, in Egypt, Rambam was supported by his brother. So his brother David supported him from all cares. Rambam was just learning Torah all day. And uh, the David was busy with, uh, he was a jeweler, buying and selling uh, stones, uh, very expensive stones. And Rambam was busy learning and preparing his works for publication. He was also appointed as the religious and lay leader of the community. We have to realize at that time, Fostat or Egypt in general was run by the Karaites. The Karaites, as you mentioned, was a sect of Jews who did not believe in the oral law. They just followed the five books of Moses literally. They didn't, they believed that women did not need to go to a mikvah. A woman could just go and have a bath because the Torah does not say anything about a mikvah. Just she should wash her body with water. So their, their policy was no oral law, no rabbis. Whatever the Torah says, we follow to the letter. Um, it's interesting that there's no concept of a mezuzah. Even though the Torah says you will write these words on the doorpost of your home, they actually write the Ten Commandments on the doorpost. There's no scroll. There is no parchment. They write the commandments on the doorpost. So everything was taken very literally. And the Ramam came along and when he went to Egypt and he started educating the masses. And he really turned the tables on the... On the Karaites and uh, the, the our our uh, own form of Judaism became precedent in Egypt and also over the Middle East because Karaites were the, one of the biggest sects in the Middle East at that time. So anyway, so he became the religious lay leader of the community. At the age of thirty-three, his commentary to the Mishnah in 1168 was completed. And a year later, his brother, David, unfortunately drowned in the Indian Ocean, a terrible tragedy. While he was on a business trip looking for precious stones, and David drowned, leaving a wife and two children and many deaths. Ramam took the blow very badly. He writes, he says, for over a year, I was unable to move. He was in bed. And then the Ramam had to find a way to earn a living and to pay back all the debts that his brother David had left, as well as now supporting David's wife and David's two children. Ramam decided to be a doctor. And it took him nearly a couple, it took him nearly 20 years to eventually to be appointed as the doctor to Al-Fazir, who was the deputy of Salah al-Din, who was very famous, Saladin. They call him the, the Western world calls him Saladin. He actually beat Richard the Lionheart and he conquered Israel from the Crusaders. But during those years, busy as he was, with a heavy burden of his practice, and occupied with the affairs of the community, writing his extensive correspondence to every part of the Jewish world. Can you imagine he became so famous because of his commentary on the Mishnah and then his Mishnah Torah, which we're going to talk about, that he got letters of questions from all the different people around the whole Jewish world, they wanted to ask questions about Jewish law, about Jewish subjects. They would write letters to Rambam. And he has an extensive correspondence. Today you'll find Shailot and Shuvot HaRambam, which they found in the Geniza in Cairo. And they reprinted a lot of these letters, a lot of the answers to every part of the Jewish world, apart from France and Germany. He wrote two monumental works on which his fame rests. 
Okay, so he had the commentary of the Mishnah. He wrote treatises on the, the Jewish calendar, the Mishnah Torah, which he completed at the age of 45 in 1180, which is really, as we said, Mishnah Torah means the second Torah. A second Torah, which is a beautifully codified form of the whole written and oral law in a beautiful, clear, crystal clear Hebrew, which is really gorgeous. It's a pleasure to read the, the Mishnah Torah. It's so clear. It's such a beautiful, it's easy Hebrew. It's, it's easy. If you know a little bit of Hebrew, you can read it. It's crystal clear and very beautiful language. And he goes through all the different laws and Jewish laws, starting from the beginning right to the end. What does that mean? The incl inclusive book of Jewish law for all time. What does that mean? That means the Shulchan Aruch, if you open up the Shulchan Aruch, which is today the Jewish code of Jewish law, or the Turim, which came before the Shulchan Aruch, you'll find it only starts, it starts with waking up in the morning and it ends with the day of one's death. It ends with the laws of mourning. So laws of mourning in the morning and laws of mourning of the morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, days of death. So it starts with a person's day. It starts with a Jewish day, how you start your day, run your day, run your week, run your year, all the festivals, how you run your life, kashrut, mikveh, all the, all the different things that Jew needs to run its life, and it ends off in the laws of mourning, plus kashrut and other things. But it doesn't really talk about the big picture. What does that mean? That means it was built, the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, was written for Jews in exile. It was written for Jews who do not have a land. It was written for Jews who do not have agriculture. It was written for Jews who do not have a temple. And therefore it skips all the vast gamut of Jewish law. At least half of the Talmud is missed. The Code of Jewish Law does not cover half the Talmud. For example, let me give a little example. Uh, this year, end of this year, Rosh Hashanah is going to be Shemitah. Shemitah is a law from the Torah. On the seventh year, the land of Israel lays fallow. That means uh, farmers are not allowed to work the land of Israel. So in those days, there was no land of Israel. In the Code of Jewish Law, there was no land of Israel. And therefore, the Code of Jewish Law skips all the laws of Shemitah. And therefore, if a person wants to learn the laws of Shemitah, there's no recourse. You have to go straight to the Rambam, because no other codifiers really talk about the laws of Shemitah. Um, another case is the laws of temple, the korbanot, the sacrifices, all the other laws. So the Shulchan there's no temple, and therefore the Shulchan does not talk about all the laws of the sacrifices of the temple, whereas Rambam does. Rambam covers everything. The Shulchan Aruch does not mention Mashiach. The Shulchan Aruch is not geared for Mashiach. Mashiach is um, not part of his worldly framework in terms of, of, obviously you have to believe that Mashiach is coming, but it's not something they talked about. Whereas the Rambam talks about the laws of Mashiach, which is very fascinating. And we have to learn this one day, maybe one day we'll do it. We'll, we'll learn the laws of Mashiach and the Rambam. Very beautiful. So Rambam talks about the whole gamut of the Jewish experience, whether you're in Israel, outside Israel, during the time of the temple, after the time of the temple, every part, he starts with basic philosophy. Interesting. His laws start with Yesodei HaTorah, the foundations of the Torah, Jewish philosophy. And he goes all the way till Mashiach. So the words, the code of Jewish law is very narrow. It's from the time you wake up in the morning to the time person dies. The Ramam says, no, my law starts with Jewish philosophy, that there is a God, the creation. And goes all the way to the end of Jewish history, which will be Mashiach. That's the difference between the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch. The Rambam was very, very broad, covered every gamut of Jewish law and codifies it in a very logical, easy way. So that if you need one of the laws, you find one. 
You want to look up something, you look it up in a very, very easy, methodical way. So the other word he used for his Mishneh Torah is the Yad HaChazaka. The Yad HaChazaka, the strong hand, obviously Hashem is going to bring us out of Egypt in the coming parashiot with a strong arm. He called his work also Yad HaChazaka. Why? Because Yad is Gematria 14, because there's 14 bones, as Dr. Avudi will tell everyone, there's 14 bones in the fingers of the hand. So it's Yad, which is the Gematria of 14. And it's the strong hand. So he, he had his Mishnah Torah composed was composed of 14 different parts. And since he was composed of 14 different parts, he called it the Yad, the Yad HaHazaka, the 14, the hand, the great hand, the big hand, the strong hand. So the Rambam composed the Yad HaHazaka, which is the Mishnah Torah, the same as the Mishnah Torah, which he compiled in 1180. And he compiled at the age of 55, 1190, the Guide to the Perplexed, which is really a first book of outreach. The Rambam did outreach to the masses of intellectuals. The Rambam did outreach to the masses of intellectuals who had come uh, in Spain and the, the masses of intellectuals in Spain were very much absorbed into philosophy and science and literature and poetry and they were getting removed from Jewish thought. And the Rambam wrote the guide to the perplexed to reach out to these people and show them that you can reconcile the Torah with philosophy, with modern philosophy, with modern science, with modern history. And that was his great outreach work. And then he wrote uh, that the Jews of Yemen were terribly afflicted at that time by the Muslims. The Muslims were persecuting the Jews of Yemen. And he wrote a book, he wrote a letter to the uh, Jews of Yemen called Igeret Teman where again, he talks about Mashiach. He talks about how uh, Jewish history is, is true and is not gonna be overcome by the Quran. And despite what the fakers over there in Yemen are saying, and not only did, did he write this letter to them encouraging the Jews of Yemen to stay Jewish. And he said, you don't have to give your lives uh, not to convert to Islam. If, you, you know, if they forced you, you're allowed to convert to Islam. You have to run away and come back to Judaism as soon as possible. Um, but then he also got involved uh, politically by talking to the vizier of Egypt to talk to the leaders of Yemen to release, to improve the conditions of the Jews of Yemen. And so he improved the Jews uh, of Yemen's condition, both spiritually by writing the letter, by encouraging them, and also physically by getting involved politically and helping them politically. Um, and... Uh, so uh, he, 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 he wrote a book about, he had to write another book called Ma'amar Tiyat Abitim. He's saying on the revival of the dead. So when a person reads the Rambam, you'll find he talks about uh, world to come. He talks about the world to come in the laws of Teshuvah. At the end of his laws of Teshuvah, he talks about, so he's not afraid to talk about anything. The Rambam was not afraid to talk about anything, anything to do with Jewish philosophy, Jewish law, Jewish history, included in his book. And he talked about even the world to come. He talks about how the greatest pleasure which awaits a Jew is the world to come. And he's uh, rather, uh, he says over there, it's not just for Jews, but it's also for the righteous of the Gentiles. So the righteous of the Gentiles also will come into the world to come. So now a lot of uh, people who read his work today, he's talking about the world to come as a spiritual world. What about the resurrection of the dead? Maybe Rabbam doesn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So they accused him 
they accuse Rambam of not believing in the resurrection of the dead, which obviously, which is uh, part of our uh, belief system, which we're going to talk about the 30 principles of faith. We're going to talk about the Zerushim. And one of the 30 principles of faith that he himself writes is the resurrection of the dead. But it seems if you read the book, the work, work on Teshuvah, is at the end of Hilchot Teshuvah, it does not talk about the resurrection of the dead. He goes straight to the world to come. So to deny the, the accusation that he denied the doctrine of the physical resurrection, he had to write this whole treatise that he believes in the physical um, resurrection of the dead. In fact, it's a big discussion in Jewish uh, philosophy between the Kabbalists and the non-Kabbalists is the physical resurrection, is the, is the physical resurrection, uh, resurrection the end or is there something after it? In other words, when we talk about Olam Abba, uh, according to Rambam, physical resurrection is first, and then the dead will, the people will die again, and then Olam Abba is purely soul. Whereas the Kabbalists led by the Ramban Nachmanides believed that the physical resurrection was itself Olam Abba, and turns into Olam Abba. What does that mean? The body itself gets elevated to a soul-like existence. The body does not die again. That's the basic discussion between the Kabbalists and the Rambam and the Pshat people. So he had to write a whole treatise saying, I believe in the physical resurrection. Um, and you know what? After a while, the Rambam succeeded. The Rambam succeeded tremendously because today everyone talks about Rambam with tremendous respect. Everyone, all the yeshivot around the world, the Rambam, Ashkenazi yeshivot, the Rambam, Chabad, they have a daily learning of Rambam. Um, and 80% of the Shulchan Aruch is based on Rambam. 80% of the Shulchan Aruch is based on Rambam. So I just want to go through. In his Mishnah Torah, Rambam confines himself to codification of Jewish law. And he does not allow his personal views to intrude. Where he does advance his own views, he is careful to introduce him with the words, it appears to me. All right. Among the few exceptions, the most striking is his outburst against witchcraft and superstition. Rambam was very much against witchcraft and superstition, which is really part of the Muslim system. You'll, you'll see even today, the Muslims paint their front doors blue. They put this eye outside. They have the hamsa. So that's how the Jews got these superstitions from the Muslim world. And the Rambam was very much against superstition. And he bursts out against that says all these and similar matters are lies and falsehood. It is not fitting for Jews who are intelligent and wise to be attracted to them or believe that they are effective. So we see the Rambam sometimes has an outburst of his own views coming through and uh, sometimes he's really irked by what's going on around him and he bursts out. In the laws of the calendar he maintains that one should have recourse to works written by the non-Jewish astronomers. So he has another principle Accept wisdom and truth from anyone who's, who says it. In the Guide to the Perplexed, he allows himself more freedom. The main difference between the two works lie in their different purpose and aim. So the Mishnah Torah was written for the believing Jew, untroubled by philosophy, untroubled by the apparent contradictions between revealed law and current philosophy. And its aim was to tell a believing Jew how to conduct himself or herself according to the law. Whereas the Guide to the Perplexed, as its name implies, it was designed for those whose faith had been weakened. And its aim was to tell them why they should adhere to traditional Judaism. So we said it's an outreach manual for the time. It's interesting because it's, it's a very interesting reading. The, every Jew should have 
the Mishnah Torah. Every Jew should make a fixed time to learn Mishnah Torah. Every Jew should make a fixed time to learn the guide for the perplexed. However, I've got to warn you, the first section, I would, there's three parts of the guide to the perplexed. And I would start from the third section of the guide to the perplexed, where he goes into the Tame Amitzvot, where he goes into the reasons for the mitzvot. Very, very interesting reasons he advances for the mitzvot. But a person's going to know, he says, when you, when you talk about the reasons for the mitzvot, that even if you think the mitzvah, the reason for the mitzvah does not apply, maybe I don't know the reason for the mitzvah. Um, we're, we're meant to try and understand the reasons for the mitzvot, but our understanding is limited. And therefore, even if a person says, I know the reason for the mitzvah, the reason for the mitzvah doesn't apply, the person should think, you know what, maybe I haven't got to the bottom of it. And uh, I've still got to do the mitzvah, even though the reason doesn't apply. So that's basically, we've got to look for reasons, but the reasons we can find, the reason we can think of may not be the real reasons that Hashem had in mind when he gave us the mitzvah. So anyway, but it's very interesting. The third section, do not start with the first section. You will not get through it. It's very heavy philosophy, unless you're a philosophy major. First two sections go straight to the third section of the Rambam's Guide to the Perplexed. Um, in his introduction to the guide, he writes, when I see no other way of teaching a well-established truth, except by pleasing one intelligent person and displeasing 10,000 fools, I choose to address myself to the one person and take no notice whatsoever of the condemnation of the multitude. So it's interesting because the Rambam was put in Herib. He was put in, uh, they uh, excommunicated him, the French rabbis excommunicated the Rambam because they didn't like the fact that he quoted Aristotle in the Guide to the Perplexed. Um, the Rambam's policy was to learn from everyone, take wisdom from everyone. As the Talmud says, ba'goyim ta'amin. The person says the non-Jews have wisdom, believe them. So wisdom was uh, part of the non-Jewish system as well. So he took wisdom from everyone. However, the rabbis in France did not like that. And they put the Rambam in Cherem and they burnt the Rambam's books in Paris. And when the French king saw the Jews burning Jewish books, he said, oh, it's a great idea. Let's get hold of all the Talmuds in Paris and burn them as well. So he burnt all the Talmuds in Paris on the same pyre that the Jews had burnt the Rambam's books. And because of that, the Jews in France did Teshuva, led by Rabbeinu Yona of Gerona, who wrote Sharei Teshuva based on the fact that he had put the Rambam in Cherem and he went around all the synagogues in France, apologizing in public to the Rambam. And by that time, the Rambam had already passed away anyway. But uh, we see it's interesting with the the big uh, ruckus it caused because the Rambam uh, quoted Aristotle in his guide for the perplexed. So let's, let's just talk about some of the things that we owe to the Rambam. Now we all know that there are 613 mitzvot in the Torah. How do we know there are 613 mitzvot in the Torah? The Gemara Makot tells us that we learn it from a gematria. The gematria is, we know there's two verses you're meant to teach your child as soon as they know how to speak. So today the child knows how to speak. We teach them, Abba, Abba, Ima, Ima. No, that's not a Jewish system. The Jewish system is, we teach them Shema, 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 Shema. To teach Shema Yisrael, the whole first line of Shema Yisrael. And we also teach them Torah, Tzivalanu, Moshe, Morasha, Kehilat, Yaakov. So those are the two main sentences every Jewish child must learn at the earliest age possible. So these are two belief systems that we, we want to put into the Jewish child's head as soon as he's, he's able to speak. Shema Yisrael is only one God. And uh, Torah, Moshe, Moshe gave us the Torah. 
Now, the, this Pasuk Torah, Tzivarat Moshe, Borasha, Kirat Yaakov, it's an inheritance for the congregation of Jacob. The Torah is, uh, was commanded to us by Moses, inheritance to the congregation of Jacob. So the Gemara says in Bakot, Torah, the word Torah itself, Taf Vav Resh He, is Gematria 611. 611. And Moses gave us the first two of the Ten Commandments before the Jews ran away. And so altogether we have 613 commandments. So we know, the Talmud tells us, there are 613 commandments. However, there is no list of these 600 commandments in the Talmud. The Talmud does not list the 613 commandments. So the, one of the first things the Rambam does, he writes a book of mitzvot, Sefer mitzvot, where he lists the 613 commandments, 248 positive commandments, and 365 negative commandments. And he actually has a whole treatise, which he writes to decide how to decide what is a commandment, what is not a commandment. Which commandments do you count as 613? Or which commandments do you not count as 613? For example, there were certain mitzvot in the time of, of Moshe Rabbeinu, for example, picking the man, the man, the manner, gathering the man every day. There was a mitzvah to gather the man every morning and not to gather too much and uh, not to gather on Shabbat. So these laws, he says, are temporary laws. I'm not going to count them in my Sefer mitzvot. Certain other laws which consider general laws, he doesn't count in his Sefer mitzvot. So it's interesting, he has 14 different rules on how to decide if a mitzvah is part of the 613 commandments. Interesting. So he wrote the first treaties, one of the first treaties of the 613 mitzvot. Imagine, without the Rambam, we wouldn't have a list of 613 mitzvot. There are other lists, one or two other lists, but this is the most authoritative list. Number two, we know that Judaism is very, uh, very small in dogma. We don't have a whole list of beliefs. And most Jews, you ask them, what do we believe in? So we believe in one God. Okay, is there anything else we believe in? Well, I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. Anyway, Rambam wrote us a list of 13 principles of faith. 13 principles of faith. And this became official Jewish dogma, that we believe in these 13 things. To be a Jew, you've got to believe in these 13 things, Rambam says. And uh, we sing the Yigdal and on Friday nights in every synagogue area around the globe. The Yigdal is a song consisting of the 13 principles of faith. I just want to go through some of them very fast because it's very important we know what these 30 principles are. Number one, I believe with perfect faith that creator, blessed be he, is the creator and guide of everything that has been created. He alone has made, does make, and will make all things. So Hashem is the main creator. Number two, I believe that there is no unity. Hashem, there's no other unity like the unity of God. Hashem Echad. He, are, he is, he was, and he will be. He alone is our God. He is above time. That's number two. Number two is above time. I believe with perfect faith, Hashem has no body, and he is free from all property of matter. Because if God had a body, then a physical body is limited and God will be limited. Number four, I believe the first faith that God is the first and the last. He, he's the first. He was there before creation and he's going to be there after the end. So he is above time. He is forever eternal. I believe in perfect faith that it's, Hashem is the only one who is right to pray to. He's the only one who can affect us. So therefore, we believe that Hashem is the one we direct all our prayers to God. I believe with perfect faith that all the words of the prophets are true. So again, we have to know who is the prophet. I believe with perfect faith 
the prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu is true. Because without that, the Torah would not be true. I believe in perfect faith. The entire Torah that is in our possession is the same Torah given to Moshe Rabbeinu. Nothing has changed in our Torah. It's the same Torah. I believe with perfect faith the Torah will never be changed. There goes the New Testament. There goes the Quran. I believe with perfect faith there will never be any other Torah from the Creator. Blessed be He. I believe with perfect faith the Creator knows all the deeds of human beings and who knows all the thoughts of human beings. I believe with perfect faith that God will reward and punish all humanity. That they keep the Torah, they'll be rewarded, and break the Torah will be will, will be punished. I believe perfect faith, the coming of the Messiah. And even if he waits, if he tarries, I'll wait for his coming. And number 13, I believe perfect faith, there'll be a revival of the dead. So these are the 13 principles of faith in very, very brief, very, very quick form. Again, before the Rambam, there were very little dogma. The Judaism did not believe in dogma. Did God have a body? It's interesting to see how many early rabbis uh, said that. God has a body. Because the Torah says he's a finger and a hand and a back and eyes and it talks in the language of human beings the torah talks in the language of human beings the Rambam says don't take it literally um it's all uh, metaphorical the fact that it's, the torah tells us god has a hand uh, outstretched arm all these are metaphorical don't take them literally the torah is speaking in a language that we can understand but god has no has got no form and no features i just want to go very quickly as someone just asked me number 10 Hashem knows all the deeds of human beings and he knows all their thoughts. Number 11, Hashem rewards and punishes. He rewards the righteous and he will punish the wicked. So we believe that even though we see the righteous um, in trouble in this world, we believe there's the next world where the righteous will get the reward. And even though the, the wicked are prospering in this world, we know there's a world to come where the wicked will suffer. Okay, so that's a very important concept that puts everything in perspective. Why do the righteous suffer? Why do the wicked prosper? Uh, famous philosophical questions. The Rambam says, don't worry. Eventually, everything will be taken care of. Hashem will judge everyone according to their deeds. Okay, so uh, the Rambam gave us principles of dogma. Number two. Number three. The idea of, we you know, the idea of holiness. But Rambam made Judaism a holistic religion. Judaism is a holistic religion, which means that Judaism is one of the few religions that talks about every single part of, of the human existence, every single facet of human existence. What does that mean? Our relationships between people, relationships between God, relationships in marriage, how to get married, what to do, what, how to behave, how to exist, how to get along with people, how to let, get along with society, how to create righteous societies. So Judaism, Jewish system is building from the bottom up. We create righteous societies by creating righteous people. You cannot legislate righteous societies. Well, you can, but it's not gonna help. So legislations from the top can only be enforced if you have a policeman. Whereas Jewish society believes in a society which regulates itself without policemen. Every single Jew regulates themselves, why? based on what's called Yirat Shabbat. If I am scared, I'm what I think God is watching me, as the Mishnah says in Pirkei Avot, a Jew should always think that Hashem is watching them. So then we are regulated by God directly and we regulate ourselves. So the idea of a perfect society, let's just discuss that, a holistic religion, very, very important concept, the Rambam's concept of holistic religion. Unlike other great rabbis who specialized in Halakha or in Gemara, the Rambam was an all-rounder. He was a philosopher, 
He was a doctor, he was a scientist, he was a Talmudist, so a really excellent, highest degree. And you, you see in the great yeshiva today, the great Ashkenazi short, how they learn Rambam with uh, amazing insights and with amazing deep uh, learning. And he was a halachic par excellence. He created a code of Judaism that, that covered everything, all the different aspects, philosophy, history, mitzvot, health, society. And uh, so I just want to go through a little bit, just a very little drop of his uh, treatise on health, which is very interesting because the Rambam tells us a very important rule, which most people don't get. And it's a really interesting insight. So number one is, he says, maintaining a strong and healthy body are prerequisites to serving God. After all, he says, one who is ill cannot possibly devote their energy and focus to the study of the creator. Thus, it is a legal obligation to be healthy. Can you imagine? We have an obligation from the Torah to be healthy. The Torah says, You will guard your souls very carefully. It's one of the few misfort where the Torah says very carefully. So then he says, it is equally a legal obligation to discipline yourself in all habits that strengthen and invigorate your body. So here the Rambam is telling us, it's a holistic religion. Which other religion tells us it's a mitzvah for you to be healthy? It's a law in, the, in your holy book to be healthy. We have a law in a holy book to be healthy. So healthy living is a religious obligation and discipline. Eating, sleeping, drinking, relaxing, bathing, exercising, are all part of a package called spiritual living. That's amazing. It's not just about being physically healthy so I have the energy to maximize my material pursuits. The purpose of being healthy is to provide oneself with the energy to serve Hashem, to serve God. It's very spiritual. To learn and pray with energy, to have the energy in playing the role of a vibrant spouse in building one's marriage and the energy as a parent to raise our children to read, to live their Torah lives. All acts of eating, drinking, sleeping, relaxing, bathing, and exercise, all part of the package called spiritual living. Spiritual living, amazing. And it gives us three very important ideas. Number one, and this is the, the general rule. The general rule is listen to what your body is telling you. That's amazing. The Rambam is telling us, listen to what your body is telling you. Your body knows what is good for you. So therefore, the Rambam tells us, eat only when you're hungry. Only when your body is telling you, give me food, that's when you eat. Very hard, very, very hard. Number two, drink when you're thirsty. Only when your body is telling you you need to drink, drink. And number three, relieve your body without delay. When your body is telling you you need to relieve yourself, run. Relieve yourself without delay. So the Rambam message is very simple, simple. The human body is created with such perfection, you can trust the integrity of the human body. When you feel hungry or thirsty, your body is communicating its need for refueling. When you feel tired, your body is asking for a rest. If the body is not in need of refueling, uh, but I've trained myself to go straight to the refrigerator when I enter the kitchen, my body will be forced to digest food it does not need. That means spending energy on digestion instead of spending, converting the food into needed energy. My Rambam always writes about relieving the body immediately upon the sensation for relief. Medically, elimination of food is the most important function of detoxification of toxic waste in the system. Delay and resistance is 
ignoring signals for elimination and cause toxicity to remain in the system. So it's very, but Rama tells a very interesting idea that the, the body is talking to us and we need to listen to our body. And this is part of Jewish law. Jewish law is, Jew, listen to your own body. That's amazing concept. That's amazing concept. And that really, he says, listen, how many doctors can tell you, I guarantee that if you follow these three principles, you'll never get sick. And the Rambam tells us, if you follow these principles, you will never get sick. So let me just tell you what he says, if I can find it very quickly. He says, number one is sleep, eight hours a day, eight hours a day. So, you know, this famous, famous uh, story says, they asked the rabbi, he says, rabbi, he says, you know, the Rambam says, you need to sleep eight hours a day and you barely sleep. I see you two, three hours a day. So the, Rambam, the rabbi says, you know how many sleepless nights I had over that Rambam? So uh, it's very important to sleep eight hours a day. Don't overeat. He says, eat one quarter less than what you need. How does a person know it? One quarter less than what you need. In other words, take whatever you eat on your plate and, and remove a quarter. So hard to do. So hard to do. Um, so eat less than required. Sleep well. Exercise. Very important. Exercise, he says. Very. This is, this is very, it might as well, something which is written very recently. I think it's very recent. This is Rambam 850 years ago. Exercise and make sure you go to the bathroom. When you need to go. So these are the reasons the Raman tells us it's part of the holistic system of living as a Jew, being healthy, very, very important. Okay, uh, what else? The Rambam tells us that we he learns wisdom from everyone. This got him into trouble. He would he would quote non-Jewish philosophers, especially Aristotle, his guide to the perplexed. So he said it was written as an outreach to the people, the, Jew, the young Jews at that time, the intellectuals who were going into philosophy and, and, and distancing themselves from Judaism. And he wrote it to show that, that Judaism can reconcile with all the modern philosophies and all the modern uh, different uh, ways of thought. The Rambam made his laws of health. We talked about part of his guide, which is you don't find in any other code of Jewish law. Um, the Rambam, was uh, very much against superstition, as we talked about. So these are very important things that the Rambam came along and was uh, very, uh, in terms of his uh, his uh, modern approach to Judaism, was making a holistic approach to Judaism. And wherever he needs to talk about history and Jewish law, he'd bring down history, for example, in the laws of Hanukkah, laws of Purim, which you don't find in the Shulchan Aruch. He tells you the historical background behind these events, especially in the laws of Hanukkah. He gives you the historical background behind it. Um, in his guide, some have argued that since man was created in the image of God, it follows that God was like man and must have a body. So in his guide, he shows that the word Selim, the Torah says, but Selim Elohim Barautam. God created man in the image of God. He says, Selim always refers to a spiritual quality, not a physical quality. So a tselem is not to be interpreted as a physical manifestation of God, but a spiritual manifestation of God. What is the spiritual manifestation of God? What does it mean man was created in the image of God? It's not a physical image, it's a spiritual image. That only two beings have free choice. Hashem created us, man, in his image, that we have the ability to choose as well. So God has the ability to choose, and we have the ability to choose. Amazing. Prophecy. Rambam lists three possible theories of how prophecy is acquired. Number one is 
the unsophisticated believer. That Hashem arbitrarily selects someone for prophecy. And Rambam rejects this. Obviously, Hashem does not arbitrarily select someone for prophecy. Number two, the philosophers. The prophecy occurs when man's natural faculties, particularly his intellect, reaches a high level of development. And that's called automatic prophecy. As soon as a person reaches a certain development, automatically you get prophecy. That's the way of the philosophers. And the Rambam says that's also wrong. The Rambam says the way of the Bible, which specifies a same development, that uh, the prophet is a statesman who admonishes the people to observe the laws. And it's interesting, one of the hardest jobs in, in Jewish history was to be a prophet. Why the prophet was hated by everyone, because the prophet's role was to give musar, give ethics, and uh, remonstrate with the people when they were going on the wrong track. And therefore, people hated the prophet. How many prophets lost their lives? We don't know. But there's one famous one, Zechariah, who was actually killed in the Beit HaMikdash itself on the orders of the Jewish king. And it says blood was boiling in the Beit HaMikdash for hundreds of years. So it's a dangerous job being a Jewish prophet. So according to Rambam, the Jewish prophet was a holy statesman, a holy statesman. And, um, and the difference between Moshe's prophecy, according to Rambam, was different in four ways. Other prophets received their prophecy in a dream or a vision. Moshe Rabbeinu, this week's parasha, received his vision while awake. It wasn't a dream. He was actually seeing things while he was awake. That's amazing. Not only was he seeing things while he was awake, he could actually ask questions. There was a give and take. You find in the daughters of Salaf Had, when they came and they asked him for a portion of the world in, in, in Israel, he said, just wait here a minute while I go and ask Hashem. And they wait a minute, and again, Hashem is talking to him. He's talking to Moshe. Uh, on Moshe's on call with Hashem 24-7. He can talk to God and God talks to him. And the same thing applies when they ask for a second Pesach, when they said that we're impure, we need another Pesach. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, wait one second, let's find out what God wants. And yes, you're right, we'll give a second Pesach. On the 14th of the year, there'll be a Pesach Sheni. Other prophets received their prophecy in allegorical form. Moshe Rabbeinu received his prophecy directly. So Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest prophet. It's one of the 13 principles of faith. I believe that Moshe's prophecy is true. I believe that there'll never be another prophet like Moshe Rabbeinu. Very, 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 very important idea. The idea of the prophecy, uh, how prophecy evolves, how does a person get prophecy? Obviously, a person has to train. Uh, uh, the Talmud says many prophets, there were a million prophets at one time. They were all students of prophets. You find, if you look at the story of Elisha and Eliyahu, Eliyahu Nabi had many students. And Elisha had many students. It says Shaul Amenech fell in with a group of prophets. He fell in with a group of students with prophets. So many people are trying to be prophets. They're meditating. They're withdrawing from human society to a certain extent. For days on end, they would uh, meditate and uh, wait for prophecy to come. And sometimes it came, sometimes it didn't come. And then they would go back to the houses. They'd go back home. Everyone had to be married. So they had to go back home. And uh, sometimes they would just take off for a couple of days, 30 days or so and try and get some prophecy and come back. That was a regular prophet. Moshe Rabbeinu did not need to. Moshe Rabbeinu could get prophecy anytime and anytime, anywhere. Now, it's interesting because the age of the prophecy ended at the end of, this, of the first temple. At the end of the first temple, the age of prophecy ended. The last prophets were Malachi. Mordechai was one of the last prophets. Malachi was one of the last prophets. Ezra, Nehemiah, that's it. Prophecy ended at the end 
of the first temple period, the beginning of the second temple period. So by the time of Esther, that's why the word Esther came along. We haven't had a prophet. Jews have not had a prophet for 2,500 years, basically. We have had no prophets for 2,500 years. We've had holy men. We've had holy people. We've had Ruach HaKodesh, what's called Ruach HaKodesh. But Ruach HaKodesh is not prophecy. It's more a kind of intuition. Prophecy is actually seeing things, actually getting messages in allegorical form, the Raman tells us. If you look at the prophets of Yehaskel and Daniel, they see these visions. The most famous one was the vision of the Jacob's Ladder. So it's a prophecy in allegory. So it's, uh, it's not a direct prophecy, whereas Moshe Rabbein could actually talk to God. By the bear Hashem and Moshe Lemor, Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, clearly, that's a prophecy which there's no other prophecy like that. Moshe Rabbein could get clear prophecies, the other prophets would see visions and had to explain those visions, had to understand the visions. So we haven't had prophecy for the last 2,500 years, unfortunately. But we believe, Hashem is going to send Eliyahu before the great day uh, that Hashem will send, before the Mashiach comes, Eliyahu will come. And uh, what's the purpose of Eliyahu purpose of Eliyahu will teach us how to be prophets again. Because it's impossible to see Hashem without being a prophet. Imagine, all the Jews at Mount Sinai were prophets. What does that mean, they were prophets? It means they saw and they heard Hashem talk. You cannot hear and see Hashem talk unless you're a prophet. So a person's got to learn how to be a prophet. How do we learn how to be prophets? So a person's got to learn how to meditate, how to be prophets. And that's the job of Eliyahu Navi before the great day of salvation, but Hashem, <laughs> we will <laughs> we will witness Sirianna be come and teach us. We'll all go and flock to him and learn how to be prophets again, Bezrad Hashem, all of us. But anyway, see how what a great impact the Ramam had in all these different facets of Jewish philosophy. I just want to talk about one more thing is the Rambam's approach to Midrash. Now it's interesting because there's a lot of different Midrashim, and some of these Midrashim are very, very far-fetched. So Raman says there are three basic ways people learn Midrash. He said the first is the way of the fools. The fools learn Midrash and they take everything literally and they say we have to believe in every single word of this Midrash. And the Raman says these people are bringing Judaism into tremendous disrepute because people are going to say, hey, Jews believe in all these strange things. They're fools. Number two, he says, the second thing, which is worse than the first is people take Midrash literally, and therefore they say, we don't believe in it. So this is worse, obviously, because now they're, they're, they're saying parts of the Torah is not true. So they take it literally, and they say, it's too big, it's too important, it's too way, it's too uh, way above. How can we accept certain, certain things like this? Therefore, we don't believe in them. And then he said, the third one is the way of the wise, which is, we have to know, the rabbi spoke in metaphorical language, and sometimes they wanted to stress certain things, and they exaggerated certain things. They wanted people to talk about them, and they wanted people to understand them in a deep way. And these midrashim are, are true, but we have to understand the message behind them. So that's the point. The point is these midrashim was Moshe Rabbein, 18 feet tall. Og uh, Merchabashan was the giant. He was up to the heavens. Whatever, all these midrashim, they're beautiful midrashim that they teach children in school, that there's a very deep idea behind them. So if you say Rivka was three years old, you can say she was three years old for innocence, as, as the commentary says, Rashi says by Sarah, that when she was uh, seven, she was, uh, she, when she was 20, she was like a girl of seven. 
So all these things are allegorical. So the Midrash should be learned allegorically. We have to learn how to learn the Midrash. Sharama said, take it as a story, take it as something which has got a deep parable behind it. Don't take it literally and, and then disagree with it. Don't take it literally and ignore it. Don't take it literally and make a mockery of it. So anyway, the Rambam really had a tremendous effect on us. And thank God for that, because modern Judaism is based on Rambam. Everything is based on Rambam's philosophy. Rambam's, uh, when you learn Talmud, what does Rambam say? What does Rambam, how does he codify this Talmud? So we're just learning Talmud every day. How does the Rambam codify the Talmud? Without the Rambam, we're lost. The Rambam is 80% of the code of Jewish law. So the code of Jewish law wants to codify something. How does the Rambam codify it? And the Rambam covered everything. And the Rambam made Judaism a holistic religion. 